Hello, my name is Don Stobart. And I'm Alan Gregory Fox. And we are still Pennywise Dreadful. As is conventional, we will begin with our typical content warning. Stephen King writes horror fiction and frequently explores the dark side of human nature. At times during the podcast, we will be discussing events that some listeners may find disturbing or even traumatising. And as we creep past midnight, mm. that seems very appropriate. Yes. This month, Alan, we're doing Four Past Midnight and we're just going to roll with it and see how we go. Is that right? Yeah, very much so. I think that there are there is a linear strand that I think it's an interesting one in terms of plotting a trajectory from the dark half, which we've just uh, left behind in our reread, mm-hmm. to Needful Things, which will follow on. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that progression is well is well sort of traced across the four novellas that make make up four past midnight so i think that there are there are threads that join the, the four novellas up yeah so they are worth sort of discussing in tandem at times mm-hmm. but also i think they are novellas that work as, as standalone pieces of, of fiction yeah um, particularly i think the langoliers Yep, I think the Langoliers works really nicely as standalone. But I can also see a thread that links us to the Dark Half, as you said, but also links us forward to things like Secret Windows, Secret Garden. Mm-hmm. And I think we've yes. got we've definitely got an author playing a role in a lot of these texts right around this time, haven't we, in King's Oeuvre? Um, yes, I think he's certainly become... It seems to me that he's certainly become a lot more conscious of what he is trying to achieve in sort of situating everything he writes within a larger um, body of work and a larger world. Yeah. Because I think... Is it in... I can't remember which of the sort of... Prologues or author's notes he writes for the four for the four novellas in in this collection. I think he makes note of the fact that he he's aware that Needful Things that follows on will be his last Castle Rock novel. Yeah, and so he, he intends it to be his last Castle Rock novel, and, and in that sense, I think there is a a self awareness there. Mm. But I, mean, I think it manifests beyond that. But the fact that he acknowledges it in the sort of writer's note or the author's note, then uh, it means that um, we are conscious of it before we begin reading as yeah. well. Um, but no, the Langoliers, I think. I, I read the Langoliers back when it was new. So this was one of the first way up there. It wasn't the first, but it was one of the first King books I read. Mm-hmm. And that terrified me. The idea... What, what, what is it about the Langoliers that that terrifies you? I think it was the idea, I think, round about the same time I was discovering, maybe not quite the right word for an eight, nine-year-old, the <laughs> idea of science fiction and things like time slips mm. and shifting from my world into a different world. And I think that the Langoliers, as well as, you know, like the literal Langoliers eating things, the idea mm. of getting lost in time frightened me. Yeah, and also I think, because I was thinking about this, in terms, I think the setting is also very deliberate in that sense, because not only is it getting lost in time, 
there's a getting lost in space in yeah. the sense that I've always sort of seen airports as a very sort of transitional space. Mm. They exist as a space between two tangible spaces. Yeah. You know, in terms of if you leave London to go to Heathrow Airport, Heathrow Airport is an entirely different space yeah. that exists only to take you somewhere else. Yeah. And, you know, if you're flying into Heathrow, only to allow you to transition back into London. Yeah. So, it, it, and I think that's maybe what I found so uncanny about it. Mm. So, it's interesting. But yeah, I think you're right. They do, airports do exist in a time and space of their own. They're completely separate to everything, aren't they? Yeah, absolutely. And so the idea that you get to one of these places and everything's just wrong. Because that's one of the thing, one of the things that's repeated over and over again in the novel, in the novella, that it just feels wrong, sounds sounds wrong, everything's just wrong, you know, sandwiches are off and tasteless, and drinks are flat and tasteless, and it's just not quite right. And well, I think, it's fair depending on which airports you've had uh, well, food and drink in during your lifetime. You might think they're flat and off, regardless of whether there are other people there or not. To be fair. Um, <laughs> But yeah, I think that that's something that I find quite troubling that you could get to your destination effectively and still be out of sync. Yeah. Hmm. And then there was the idea that the literal earth was being eaten underneath them as they were flying. Yeah. And, you know, as a preteen reading that for the first time, I thought that was quite unsettling and disquieting and worrying that I would one day go in an aeroplane and that could happen underneath me. And I wouldn't have known any difference because it was outside the front window where they see it to start with. Mm. Yeah, I mean, because that is the sort of the appeal of flying is that, you know, what goes up must eventually come down. So if, if, you, if the ground underneath you has been eaten, then... That's that becomes impossible. Yeah. Um, but yeah, this messed with me in <laughs> many many ways because you think you sort of start and you think, all right, this is more science fiction than it is, you know, a horror. Mm. Or you know, it's. Uh, I don't know. I think there are. I think the more we talk about King and, and sci-fi, the more I struggle to see science fiction and horror as separate entities anymore i think um i think is it noel carroll that says that science fiction and horror are inextricably linked together i think it is not entirely okay. certain but i think um yeah i think it's noel carroll that says that science fiction and horror are inex inextricably linked and science fiction is a form of horror in a lot of ways <laughs> i mean i know that um you know we've got um you know, former colleagues such as um, Sarah Wasson, who's talked about the relationship between science fiction and, and Gothic and Emily Alder and um, Sean McCarthy. Yeah, possibly. You know, so that that relationship, I think, is, is starting to get a little bit more sort of academic recognition. Yeah. Uh, but I think the groundwork is being done on a, on a fictional basis by the likes of King. Yeah. Which is, you know, you can say that Poe started it or, you know, started with the exploration between the two genres. But I think... And there is a, also a, a great 
argument to be made that the very first science fiction novel, as gothicists are all screaming now, um, Frankenstein, I was going to say Dracula, that's not science fiction. Frankenstein is one of the first science fiction novels, but it is also incredibly heavily gothic, and yes. there is plenty of horror in there as well, isn't there? Yes, indeed. So, yeah. so you know, the relationship between the two yeah. goes back a good two centuries. But as much as, you know, the setting and, um, and the genre are sort of a couple of the things that make the Langoliers so appealing. I think it's also the the cast that uh, King puts together yeah. that makes this take. The thing, I think, as much as it is a good cast, though, and, and although uh, Brian, the, the pilot, seems to be at the, the epicentre of it, it really seems, the more it progresses, it seems that um, Dinah... And Craig Toomey are the are the centre of, yes. of the of the text. And I would say that even though neither one of them survive until the end of the text, I would say that they are the protagonist antagonist pairing. And I would say that calling Toomey an antagonist is maybe a little bit not disingenuous, but it's not exploring the fullness of Toomey's character that we see. No, I think it's funny that. Because I was, I was thinking about this in terms of, I think because of the structure of Four Past Midnight as, a, as an artefact, mm. uh, it sort of invites direct comparisons with with different seasons. Yep. And so I can see parallel, it's almost, I sort of see Craig Toomey as, if, we'd, if, if Todd Bowden, if we'd have continued beyond Tom, Todd Bowden's teenage years and mm. sort of seen his progression into adult, full-blown adulthood, mm. you know, in the sort of 30s and 40s, that Craig Toomey's not too far removed from what Todd Bowden would have yeah. become. Yeah, there's definitely a psychopathy about Toomey, but I think he's quite a rounded character. Mm. I don't think he's just psychopathic. We see why he behaves the way he did. We see his relationship with both of his parents... Yeah. Which is completely, absolutely, totally fucked up. I think also it's there's a sort of there's an intellectual drive to Toomey that that sort of reminds me of is reminiscent to me of Todd Bowen. Yeah. And I think that it's part of it's their you know, it's their the sort of catalyst for their respective downfalls, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, intellectual ambition is bad for you, kids. Don't yeah. go to school. Don't go to school. Definitely don't do a PhD in English. No. Um, stay at home. Stay safe. Stay at alert. the NHS. Yeah. <laughs> so, we'll get that in. Um, no, um, I mean, unsurprisingly, perhaps, given my sort of inclinations towards disability studies, um, I was kind of um, intrigued by how King would once again treat disability mm. um, and actually the Langoliers is one of the few um, texts in King's oeuvre that has had has been referenced directly in uh, a disability studies book okay um, so um, David Bolt in his novel, uh, novel um, <laughs> 
study the meta-narrative of blindness sort of talks not extensively but you know as part of a, a wider sort of um, treatment of um, fictional representations of blindness mm-hmm. um, he um, he includes Dinah in in the Langoliers okay um, um, what he does say was he uh, finds it problematic the number of times that Dinah is not referred to by name, but as the blind girl. Yes, I can see that being problematic because I found that fairly uncomfortable as a repetitive needing to signal. I also found um, quite, not as problematic as her just being given a, the blind girl moniker um, to describe her, but the, the at least twice we get told that she sees through other people's eyes. Yeah. And she's going, she's on the plane to go be fixed. Yeah, it's the the, the cure narrative is always yeah. a little bit... So oh. her blindness comes across as not only temporary, but mm. also already impermanent. And that's not the case for a lot of blind people. You know, people no. with sight problems that could be de- degenerative or what you know and Dinah's Dinah's disability is a disability that will that can go away if she gets to the end of her journey because we don't know at the start that she won't that they're going to fix her eyes and give her the ability to see and we get told at least twice like I say she sees herself through Craig Toomey's eyes at the beginning and she looks like a monster and she sees herself at the end through Craig Toomey's eyes and then explains to Lauren Laurel? Lauren? I want to say Laurel. That she saw her through Toomey's eyes at the when he just before he died. Yeah. And that takes away, I think, some of the significance of her disability. Yeah, I, I think, yeah, I can sort of... Because I think Bolt does actually sort of praise King for the way that she isn't ultimately diminished to the moniker of the blind girl or the labelled as such. But I do agree that surrogate vision is not really the the same as, you know, I think there's still something problematic about it. I'm not entirely convinced by King's resolution of, you know, of her her disability or of his um, representation of the the disability. Um, I think that I'm not asking for, you know, I'm not asking for a resolute, um, for him to solve the impairment. Mm. I, I, I would, I think that there need, there just needs to be, I'm always, particularly, I've always found particularly in, in sort of genres like horror, like science fiction, they're either, you know, my entire contention of the, of the book I never wrote was, um, you know, they're either, they're either angels or monsters. Yeah. Um, or, you know, they're sort of like Tiny Tim, you know, yeah. triumph against adversity, adversity, hurrah. Or, you know, they're demonised because of their bodily differences. Yeah. And I think King succeeds in, he doesn't fall fall into all of it, you know, he, he doesn't fall foul of all of those pitfalls. But he uh, definitely, he definitely stumbles, I think. Yeah, I I don't think it's um, an entirely positive portrayal. However, I am going to go ahead and, from my sighted perspective, say that when the beginning of the book, when Dinah first wakes up, the 
the the way she's represented as not being able, with not being able to see and not knowing what's going on that did give me a feeling of panic i did emotionally connect with that as a as a concept and it did make me empathize with Dinah you know that sure. she touched that, that that on the chair and it was like somebody's hair you know that and she yeah. was panicking and where was her aunt and all of that and it did yeah. i did empathize completely with that and that did feel bearing in mind that i've never been not sighted it did feel like a reaction that might be feasible sure no I, and i think particularly there's a there's a recognition that regardless of whether her impairment is cured or not by the sort of surgeons in boston that she'll still need that support network presence yeah the fact that, that is immediately removed and you know aunt vicky disappears yeah and it, it does add to that sort of uh, her um, being so disorientated yeah. as well as you know, just frightened because you know she's expecting to reach out and at least be able to feel something tangible next to her that she recognises as her aunt who is there to support her. Yeah. So the fact that that's gone, yeah. Yeah, um, there would be an absolute level of panic. By the fact that she can't see alternatives or where Vicky may have gone. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think so, I think his representation of blindness in this text is double-edged. I think some yeah. things he's had that work and some things he's had that doesn't. I'm not sure where I stand on him killing her off either. Yeah, there is a... Again, it's the part of, you know, angel or demon. Yeah, and she's given the role of angel, isn't she? Yeah. Quite literally given the role of angel. Yeah, it's sort of the... Um, she is the saviour of everything because she is the one who sends Toomey running off to the Langoliers off the, on the uh, runway so that the plane can go. So without her sacrifice... Yeah, it, it does... It, we are sort of back in very definitive black and white yeah. Mother Abigail man in black yeah. territory. Aren't we are absolutely. And, and I think that... That's There's something quite melodramatic about it. Yeah. And I'm not saying it's ultimately problematic, but it just feels a little bit uncomfortable. Why couldn't they just kill Laurel off or you know? Well, because Laurel is key to Nick Hopewell's redemption mm. arc. Mm. But you, you know yeah. Mm, yeah. why did it have to be the one disabled person on the on the flight? You know? Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm I'm with you on that one. Um I did want to ask you you know, just circling back slightly to... Um, As you would on a plane. Indeed. Um, um, the significance of her of Dinah being reduced to the label the blind girl. Okay. Um, several instances. The reason, another reason why I find that particularly problematic is because her name in itself seems quite significant to me. Okay, go on. Um, I mean, I, I know that... Um, John Sears wrote about the Langoliers quite heftily in, in Stephen King's Gothic. Yeah. And I reread that again um, this morning just to remind myself of the kind of things he was touching on. And it included a sort of a, a recognition that there was a sort of um, Lewis Carroll-esque feel to the narrative in, in terms of its nonsenseness. Okay, go on. If I remember right. Go on, carry on. Yeah, I mean, I think... Circling back to Dinah being referred to in several instances as the blind girl or using the label of the blind girl, 
is particularly problematic given the significance of her name anyway. Okay. I mean, John Sears in Stephen King's Gothic um, talks about uh, or talks about the connections between the Langoliers and uh, Lewis Carroll. Okay. Uh, when he talks about Bob Jenkins, and um, there's a quote from there's a quote where it says, "Characters thus awaken into a condition of horror, the origin of which the origin of which sleep has enabled them to evade a horror, a kind of non-existence, or a movement into a world of non-existence which persists as a kind of nightmare." So she's and almost gone. They've almost gone through through the rabbit hole, sort of a thing. Yeah, and I think it's his his contention is that yeah, there is a sort of parallel there between them doing that and Bob Jenkins being able to facilitate their understanding of that's what's going on. Yeah. But also, them painting them as as Alice-like figures. Yeah. yeah. So the fact that that um, King's blind girl is given the name of Alice's cat. Diamond mm. is therefore significant. Yeah, you see, I hadn't thought of that. My brain had gone down the angel path because um, Dinah is in the Bible. She's uh-huh. Jacob's daughter in the Bible. You know, Jacob, Jacob, and yes. sons. Yes. Um, and also, there is a, there was an angel oh, called. <laughs> there was an angel called Jophiel. And that's an alternative name for Dinah. So I'd gone down the angel route where she is literally the saviour and there's a number of angelic... Well, a number. At the end, Toomey sees her floating around, doesn't he? And and I'd gone that way rather than Alice in Wonderland. Ah, but the fact that both readings are possible... Yes. ...means that the, the, the significance of her name is multifaceted mm-hmm. and you know multidimensional yeah. in terms of... What we're talking about, perhaps multidimensional, might be the way. <laughs> and I also, I also, um, the Hebrew meaning of the word "diner" in itself as a name means judged or from the valley. So I'd, you know, I, I just barreled down the road of, oh, she's the angel, she's judging to me, and she finds him not guilty. All right. So if you take that reading, um, does that mean that? Again, circling back to what we were saying earlier, is that why she has to be the one who has to die? Well, possibly, but I still find that quite uncomfortable, personally. But, you know, I think that's... Maybe because we live in this woke world of the 21st century. Essentially. Where, you know, killing off the one disabled person (laughs) in the book isn't always a good thing, you know? Like... I remember um, you ran a conference several years ago where I spoke about King using black people as a magical Negro Mm. and how at the time that was a good thing and nobody went, oh, that's a bit wrong, Stephen King. But now... I would like to retrospectively (laughs) apologise. Whereas now we look at those texts and we see things like the Green Mile and John Coffey, who is sacrificed for the good of the white people, as very problematic. Whereas when he first wrote the Green Mile, there was nothing problematic about that. Mother Abigail is a magical negro in the fact that all she's there for really is to facilitate Stu Redmond going to Las Vegas to kill off Randall Flagg, you know? And we see things differently in the intervening time. So... I don't know. Mm. I was wondering whether that was part of it. We're seeing, you know, as a cultural artifact, the Langoliers yeah. and killing off the one disabled character isn't as positive 
as it would be. No, um, but I mean, it's still... I don't know. I think the fact that so many different readings are possible means that it does sort of... It's kind of timeless in that mm. way. I mean, you know, it's... Um, I think I would like to believe that we can be objectively critical of King's fiction. Yeah. Uh, but also while recognising its value. And I think the fact that multiple uh, readings are possible means that it will, um, you know, criticisms and, and readings of it will sort of mutate as time mm -hmm. progresses. And I don't think... I think that's why a rereading like this one... Yeah. Um, is, ...is a worthwhile enterprise. I don't think King himself would be critical of us being critical do you know what i mean no. i don't think he'd say well that's wrong because just because that was right then he is aware that things change over time you know yeah. and a lot a, a number of the things he's written i'm not going to mention that scene in it for example no. where nobody batted an eyelid when that first came out but you know when the film came out um the second part of the film where that scene would have taken place mm. there was a lot of retrospective argument about why that was so vile and i don't disagree no but then you know there's then we've got a cultural we've had a cultural shift as sure. to what's acceptable so. i mean it's funny because obviously there there's been a lot of, of talk in you know in the current political climate um particularly following um the death of george floyd mm -hmm. and the black lives matter movement um and i think that the same can be applied to King's representation of uh, people of colour. Mm -hmm. uh, um, so if you look at um, King's earlier figures, like Mother Abigail, and even, say, Mike Hanlon, who's a sort of later black figure yeah. within um, King's um, body of work, um, if you then go on to somebody like um, Jerome in Mr. Mercedes, who, you know, we're talking sort of 30 years later... Yeah. Um, the representation of Jerome is is far more nuanced and a little bit less problematic, um, and even as far as him, you know, parroting black stereotypes. Yeah. His interactions with with Bill Hodges as a sort of acknowledgement of the problematic nature of some historical representations of of black people. Yeah. Um, in America. Um, and at least he's willing to look at his own representations and make changes. You know, yeah. so he's not stuck to the same stereotypical character that John Coffey is, to a greater extent. Your mother no. are just tired now, and all of that, you know, and even to some extent, um, Detta. In, yeah. You know, um, what honky mofo, whatever it is she says, yeah. he he gets he he you know he, Jerome, almost seems like a way that he's coming to terms with that representation and making it more rounded and realistic and real. Yeah. And being yeah, and woke that, enough... His, his wider role yeah. in that text is to, do, is to serve that function. Yeah. Um, and I think it's almost like a retrospective apology for yeah. previous one-dimensional representations. But I think that um, maybe Diner is, is starting that that trajectory from um, from the point of view of some of his um, disabled figures. Yeah. Because King, King is somebody who, who has a number of, uh, of disabled figures in his body of work. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's not like... Because I know there, there, are, there are some authors who are criticised for 
a complete lack of, of disability within their within their yeah. work as if they, they don't really acknowledge that disabled people exist at all. Um, I'm living proof that they do. Um, so I would like to sort of put my hand up and be like, excuse me. Um, but um, I no, think I, we also have to remember um, not to not to excuse King's writings at any point that have been less than positive or you know. No, absolutely. He is reflecting what's going on in society a lot hmm. and when you have a society that does not is not accepting of disabled figures of black figures of asian figures of minority figures of whatever of whatever nature then he has reflected that in his fiction and whilst he might not have been the most positive portrayal of that we do see what's been going on in the cultural moment that he's been writing about don't we no absolutely yeah so some praise for King, but um, but uh, mediated praise. Yes, mediated. <laughs> I wanted to ask Alan. Yes. Um, I wanted to ask you what you, because you know uh, we we do have a lot of American um, downloaders, a lot, few. You know, one of our listeners is in America. Um, <laughs> but I wanted to ask you about Nick and his Englishness oh. within an American text. Because it's uh, a peculiarly American text. We've got American Airlines. It's, you know, built up around America and the American landscape, American characters, and then Nick. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I, I do sometimes wonder... Have I put you on the spot there? Well, no, I mean, I, I get the impression, again, from, from reading, like, from reading um, John Sears and other people's work, you know, I think... This is what Americans think James Bond mm. should be like. Yes. Um, and, and therefore, I don't think it's particularly accidental that he gets the girl either. I but, also don't think it's accidental that he is the self-sacrificing hero. Oh, if only James Bond would die as well. <laughs> but there's a new one of those coming soon. Yes. But yeah, um, the idea of it, Nick does seem like a peculiarly... Peculiar... Yeah. A James yeah. Bond figure within the narrative, and yeah. we get told, you know, his history. I'm not. I, I was just a soldier, but then as the text goes along, we get lots of little hints that he wasn't just a soldier. He's sure. a special soldier who did special things, and then we get the the um, confession, don't we? But then he sacrifices himself for the greater good, and so I was wondering what that was saying about America's or the American cultural moment's idea of what a British person was. I mean, we're in 1990 here, aren't mm -hmm. we? So, um, are we sort of thinking Margaret Thatcher in track? Well, um, I, well... No, I mean, in the sense that... Cause we're talking the very first wave of the special relationship, the sort of reagan No, because it was the end of that, wasn't it? Yeah, but we're still in it. And it's the end, uh, the Cold War's just finished, so technically speaking, the tension that Nick describes about Britain and Ireland, you know, he talks about being in Northern Ireland and things, doesn't he? That's idealistically dissipated in America in the Cold War and things, so we get this idea of American superiority. You were yeah. That the planes, and, what does it say, Proud America? Pride of America or something on the plane on the back? 
There's yeah, I think, I mean, I think that I'd almost go as far as to say that the Nick represents a sort of... I, I think King's trying to map on to, to, in, in a, Brit, to a British stereotype mm. what he's trying to achieve with, with Jack in The Shining in terms of you have a, an American masculinity that was defined by its sort of... Uh, involvement in in Nam, yeah, um, that is is now sort of past its um, its usefulness to exact violence upon an enemy. Yeah, um, so I think Nick's kind of feeling the same kind of redundancy, but it's been plotted into or plugged into a, a British context. I just thought it was quite, it was quite something. I don't want to say the I word because we're not drinking. But, <laughs> <laughs> the, the, you know, <laughs> there's something about having a British character. And he wasn't even a British character that I would have recognised as a British character. So I was wondering whether there was a stereotype there, first of all. Oh, no, there's definitely a stereotype. James Bond and, and the perception of Britishness mm. in that, you know, the stiff upper lip. Yeah. All of that stuff. Or whether he was just replacing the magical Negro figure, the angel figure, with this different stereotype well, as a self-sacrificing to... person to keep the American way of life going. Um, potentially. Um, I mean, I'm just trying to think. There's, there's something quite... Because I don't think... Entire, I know that we're sort of invited to, to make the, the Bond comparisons, but I don't... I'm also wondering if there's something quite aristocratic about the way that Nick operates. Okay. You know, in the sort of way that, like, all of the the male members of the royal family are sort of co-opted into military service and that kind of thing. And it's that I always, or I kind of got the sense that there was a, a military component to the way he operates as well as, you know, secrets. Yeah. No, absolutely, I think there is. But I think, I'm wondering whether that's because... As an American writing a British figure, you can't entirely escape of sort of fixation with military action. Um, I wonder what pre uh, I wonder what President Bonespurs thinks of that. Um, <clears throat> President, but um, no, I, um, so I don't really think I've answered your question, but I think that um, I think there is more to unpick than a than a straight. It's yeah, just it's one. not just he hasn't just picked British person out of the air and gone with it. It does seem like there's a something deliberate going on with having him be British and having him being the sacrificial victim, who yeah. you know gives everything up with a stiff upper lip in order to keep the American way of life going. I mean, is it? Are we in Falklands territory at this point? I was eighty-two, but I mean, maybe it's a, a belated commentary on the on the Falklands, in in the sense that the Falklands was about disputed territory. Yeah. Yeah, maybe. I think um, John Sears talks about about it, doesn't he? Yeah. He talks about... Um, John's getting a lot of plugging in this particular book. Well, that's because he's written quite extensively about um, the Langoliers, which doesn't seem to be a big thing, does it? No, no. And I've lost where it is in the book. One, four, one... Was it one three six two one four two or something like? Never mind. Be all right. Um, the other the other thing that I'd um, thought about this book as I was going through it was the links. There's some quite explicit links to other 
mocking texts and we've come across that a number of times now but I wanted to because I think these are quite explicitly made links okay. I picked up three fairly substantial ones um, each of the chapters of the Langoliers is chapter headed the same as the way the mist is okay and I think the two novels have got both got quite an apocalyptic feel and I know we haven't got to the mist have we but yeah I think no, that I, think, I think, you know, I think uh, our listeners will know enough to know that we may not have read or reread everything yet, but we certainly know enough to be able to make links that we can then sort of link back to, you know. So, two apocalyptic narrative novellas going on with the same chapter structure within them, which I thought was an interesting meta detail. Yeah, although, I mean, it's been a while since I've read The Mist. Ah, well, we might come back to that then. What well, no, but what I, what I mean is, but from what I remember, the one difference between the two is, is or the, the thing that sort of marks out the Langoliers is different entirely, is that the world is already pretty much ended by the time you arrive. Mm. Not, you're not... Even so, with like the stand, you know, any of King's apocalyptic fiction, the Langoliers separates itself or makes itself or is presented as a little bit more unique because you don't witness the end of the world, it's already happened. Yeah. In this, I mean, all right, I know that the sort of the cleanup team are coming to sort of mop up the, the remainder, um, but you know, the way that you land in a space that's already empty, you know? Yeah. You're just the remnants of what's left. Yeah. The world has ostensibly ended. Um, so you don't witness it. No. And I think that's the thing that makes it, marks it out as different. Yeah. To the, but I think on, an, on a meta level, the structural, the narrative, I like narrative. So that, that appealed to me that there was a link there that's not textual properly. Mm. But it's there for those, you know, little nod, look, uh, look what I can see. The other one that we do know, um, that we have come across several times, so it's definitely in the Tommyknockers, definitely in the stand, and definitely in Firestarter, is there's a mention of the shop. Yes. Would you um, want? I think the shop is, is something that will be recurring in mm. many of our conversations throughout the four novellas. We are embarking upon a discussion um, on right now. And <laughs> um, going on, to, I think it's therefore significant that we move on to needful things mm -hmm. where um you know where the shop is so central to everything that goes yeah. on and yeah. um, i wonder what these capitalist impulses or you know in terms of the way it's labeled shop implies sort of a capitalist impulse even if it's i don't know because it is sort of a capitalist yeah i think that could be a big discussion the shop in firestarter and things versus the shopping needful things. I think that could be a huge ideological discussion, couldn't it? But yeah, I mean, we're not talking sort of cash transactions. No, into we're not, are we? But the, the fact that it's labelled in that way. Mm, absolutely. You know, talking the sort of the, the prevalence of American capitalism. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, and it, you know, the shop and its many, many manifestations. Mm. Uh, but the biggest, biggest one... Um, our listener might know that we have worked together on Stephen King a variety of times and we wrote an article about the novel 112263 several years ago together, didn't we? 
We did indeed. And I think one of the little giggles I had whilst reading the Langoliers was the idea of um, what's the author called again? The author on the plane on Langoliers? Because I'm not oh, um, names. Bob? Yeah. No. Bill? It's Bob? Bob. Anyways, he mentions something along the lines of what would happen if you could go and stop the Kennedy assassination. Yes, yes, that <laughs> was. Because it's the first time I've read this novella since I've read Eleven Twenty Two. Yeah, me too. And I, I thought because I know that King talks about Eleven Twenty Two having been on his desk or an idea in his head for twenty years. Yeah, I think this is where it began. Dance in Macabre, which was the early 80s, he talks about it, doesn't he, a little bit? I think there's a... But this is like the first gem where he goes, oh, but what if you could? Yeah. And I think that yeah. floats around in his head for a, two or three decades, doesn't it? Yeah. And then suddenly we have this... Well, I think the Kennedy assassination for King, I think, has a, a dual purpose almost. It's like... There's a, there are, or there's dual recognitions going on simultaneously in his head. Yep. There's a recognition that it's a seismic event in American culture that every American pretty much would like to see, would like to change if they could. Yeah. But if they could, they shouldn't, because <laughs> of the, the ramifications well, of it would be too great. You know that that's the the central premise we decided in our article yeah. of eleven twenty two sixty three that just because you can do something such as potentially change the future doesn't mean you should do something such as change the future mm. you know it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be a good thing no indeed um but um no when when bob jenkins threw that one out um about the going back to stop the kennedy assassination i did have a a little bit of a chuckle to myself. Um, <laughs> I wondered if you would enjoy it quite as much as me, but uh, yes. Yeah. yes. Um, another thing, I don't want to say I wanted to talk about, I wanted to ask you, another observation that I made whilst reading um, was we get, they're flying back, aren't they? They, they, they? they sort out the problems at Bangor Airport, managed to get back in the sky, Nobody remembers that they need to be asleep till they just about hit <laughs> the portal back. And I think that's... I can't particularly grasp why King left it till the very last minute, effectively. Was it just to give us a sense of danger? The fallibility of humankind? Um, well, I think that... <clears throat> I almost saw it as kind of like an aftershock thing. Okay sense that you know if you see these kind of disaster movies um you know the sort of deep impacts of, of and the like um where the big the sort of epicenter of the danger has passed and you sort of think you've heard all that and you, you're great yeah but there's there's gonna be an aftershock somewhere okay but it seems like a fairly <sighs> i can't even think of the wording i want to use that they, you know they get back onto the plane yeah and, you know, obviously they're worried about Dinah, Toomey's dead, but all of the remnants of every other passenger are still strewn around. So no matter where they're going and where they're looking to sit, there will be evidence that the other people disappeared and that they were asleep. So it seemed to me to be pretty far-fetched, that premise that they forgot, you know? Mm. Yeah, because, of course, you know, 
King is one of those world-renowned realist novels where everything is like... And, but it did feel a bit, even for, you know, a suspension of disbelief novel such as Time oh. Slips and Time Travel, that that was a, quite a biggie. They make a, such a big deal about the fact that there's only them and everybody was asleep and, you know, the man at the back of the plane is still asleep. And he goes, <laughs> you know, it it's quite a big moment that stretches throughout the whole of the novella. And then suddenly they've forgotten. Yeah, I can't. I honestly can't explain it. I can't. Um, I wish I could sort of. There was something in the text. I go. I know exactly why he did that. And yeah. There's no. There's, there's. You know. There's no sort of point to it as a, in terms of. In. <laughs> right. You know, because we've talked about the the multiplicity of significance and various aspects of this novella. Um. This is not going to be one of those. Um, but I think, <laughs> given, given that we've we've praised King for the sort of meticulous nature of the construction of the rest of the novella, it does seem a little bit out of place. Yeah. But maybe that's the point. You know, the, the tiny details like when Brian's dreaming in the opening and he's dreaming of his dead wife, dead ex-wife, isn't he? And there's something written on the only stars something. Do you remember? Yeah, I do also think it's really, really funny that Albert is so really, really careful with his violin. <laughs> really, really expensive violin. You know, t careful sending it down the chute. I don't want to wreck it. And then they use it, you know, its entire sentence to give it. Yeah. You know, it doesn't reverberate right or vibrate right in the empty space of the airport. And then the Pratt leaves it behind, on, you know. But I can uh, sort of see that with the panic of needing to get moving and Dinah, and he'd had that whole experience with Toomey. Yeah, and the whole prospect of getting laid when he gets on the plane. Right. And if you're a 17 year old, that's a big deal. Yeah. So I can sort of see that in a way that I can't manage to, to get with the, the sleeping thing. Sure. But never mind, anyways, can we talk about the Langolias themselves? for a while now when we when i back in the olden days when i was but a student one of the things i learned about a lot of tragedies is the naming of the title um situates the central character in a lot okay. of ways so if you were running with that as an idea that would situate potentially the langolias as a central character yes. in this text now are they, have they come from toomey's mind do you think? Or were they already an entity that the name has been given from to me? Well, the, the, Did he invent the, them? I think there is a sort of, I don't know, there's, there's a sort of Rumpelstiltskian kind of, you give something significant once you name it. Mm. And uh, they are significant because he's named the novel after them. Sure. What I mean is, I kind of got the sense that that Dinah's knowledge of them pre-dates pre, pre her interactions with Toomey. Okay. So she, it's, it's one of those where I assume that they, they exist, uh -huh. but they are, as in, regardless of what Toomey calls them, they exist. But it's one of those where Toomey knows what they are and has, has attributed a label to them. Okay. Yeah. And that's um, been picked up by Dinah. Yeah. Um, but she may have previously known of them without 
knowing what to call them. Okay, it just struck me as... <sighs> I'm not doing very well with words. This is the problem with lockdown, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Words it's escape even more than normal. Um, <clears throat> yeah. That it struck me as that they should be incredibly significant. They, but they almost seem like an ex a justification for the need to move, rather than anything in and of themselves or something. I don't know. Yeah, I mean. And so that would situate them as not being as important. But then, too, we spend such a long time when we when we're coming from his perspective, talking about his idea of the Langoliers, doesn't he? There's a lot of his childhood and how his dad had uh, said they would come and get him, you know, that sort of a thing. Yeah. So I was wondering if part of the science fiction time slipness was they took that out of Toomey's head. And gave it manifestation. Yeah. Um, that's one possible reading. Or are we just getting a bit deep? Well, no, I think... Hey man, if it invites the reading, why not? We, we, that's what we're here to discuss. If people want to pull us up for it, then that's <laughs> fine. No, but as I, say, I think there are two ways of looking at it. Either you look at it like that, or you look at it as, you know, there are all sorts of, you know, childhood boogeymen that, ex oh, that exist. You know, whether it's, um, you know, the Krampus, or, you know some demonic tooth fairy or Donald Trump okay. uh, or you know um, I think you know there's this sort of there's the idea of the I think it comes from the sort of the Chinese whispers effects that comes from all the oral st storytelling tradition okay yeah um, it's how I read it so you know you have all sorts of monsters that are that parents create in order to make their children behave which is what Toomey's dad did, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, and then I can or, see... Or in a... like, this is what I mean in terms of... If you can imagine a scenario where he has a conversation with one of us in real life or whatever, and he said, oh, my dad told me about the Langoliers, and, and we were... Well, we had something similar, but it wasn't yeah. that. It was something else. So I think there are multiple ways to, to read it, whether they've been... Because of, because of the time-slip nature of the... And the sort of multi-dimensional possibilities of a tale like this one mm. um, you can read it one way um the way the way you suggest or it's a, a case of they're just because you never actually see them you know i think yeah. they're just you know they're um, um an invisible entity that makes you know crunching noises did um, well you say invisible alan but i got a mental image mm. and my mental image was you know Super Mario, the video game? Yeah. Um, I think it's Super Mario. Some games I play, played when I was younger. Um, a giant ball and chain looking creature with teeth. Oh, yeah. And that's I'm the way I envisage the Langoliers in their... I'm trying to think if it's Sonic the Hedgehog, though. I don't know. It's one of those sorts I'll of games. I'll have to look it up, then. <laughs> It's one of those sorts of games, though, that I have in my head that that's what they looked like. Sure. No, um, I think... But what I'm suggesting is that mental images like that are possible because they're never actively described by King within the fabric of his yeah. narrative. Yeah, I think that's, that's right. And I think 
that's one of the things I like about King. He can give you enough clues for you to interpret it, and I will interpret it in a different way to the way you do. Sure. I mean, I think mine was slightly coloured by the, you know, I made the mistake, and it and it was a mistake, <gasps> of uh, watching the trailer for the, the film adaptation. I didn't. It ends with the just this giant crunching sound as the, as the sort of credits showed up. Um, no. So you, you sort of get this, you get the sense that these monsters are more audio than visual. Yeah, uh, and I, I agree, and I think what I've got in my head is whatever game that was, whether it was Mario or whether it was Sonic or something along those lines, these big know, exactly. ball and chain things with the big teeth they make, that sort of crunching noise, and the teeth yeah. go up and down, I think. But yeah, I think that's, that's grand. Mm. Finally, Alan, yes. finally. Finally, finally, finally. Um, I think we should think about maybe wrapping up, but I wanted to ask you about the ending. Indeed. So we've had Nick's great sacrifice. Yeah. Dinah's sacrifice. Even mm. Toomey's sacrifice. Because yeah. Toomey has been sacrificed by Dinah, hasn't he, really? Yes. And they fly back through and they come back to life. Back to life. They rejoin time. Yes. In the airport, don't they? What do you reckon happened after that? So we've got um, no violin, no plane, no passengers, no diner. How are you going to explain all of this? Uh, well, King obviously doesn't know how, so it's like, the end. Because I think that's... If you're going to stick people back into a real-life situation, so they left a real situation, they had their just a real bizarre situation where things happened and then they came back to reality that would you know be mad yeah you just also get the sense that they go through the um the void or whatever it is that they went through originally and and then all of a sudden and vicky reappeared and right like, has gone yeah exactly you know you would expect you would expect if, if you're going to put people back into normative space do you need to put them back into a normative situation? Because if you think about it, Alan, I know this is 1990 and we're, you know, 30 years later now, mm. but the trauma... Yeah, there doesn't seem to be an acknowledgement of that trauma at all. It's all like, and then they all joined hands and went down... Right. There was a sort of, there was a bit of a Wizard of Oz feel to the end oh. of that. You know, they sort of strolled down like, like this. <laughs> <laughs> Their arms joined and... Uh, and I appreciate we're looking at a piece of fiction and science fiction and... But still, the the ending left me feeling hollow, I think. Kind of like the airport. Yeah, and I'm not sure that would have been a deliberate move. We all lived happily ever after, you know? Don't know. Um, I don't... I, I agree. I don't think, I don't think the, the ending is is satisfying um in that it's i think it's too neat yeah it is you're not wrong you have you have a an, an entire narrative that is predicated on the existence of remnants of previous existences and of previous times yeah you know like the fact that they you know they leave retainers and pacemakers and everything all over the right. airplane but um the fact that they don't seem to exist once they return to their original timeline is very problematic. Yeah. And, you know, I think it 
not to, you know, I couldn't write that novel, novella, I, I freely admit that, and I'm being critical, I admit that too. And I don't oh. mean critical as in an academic pursuit where I'm being constructive, I'm being critical of the ending, I don't think it works very well. But at the same time, I think it would have deserved to be acknowledged that it wasn't the end, because it couldn't be the end. You wouldn't skip down the yellow brick road into happiness. You know, Laurel, apart from anything else, would have been traumatised by Dinah's death. Yeah, you can't imagine her going to see her the bloke that she was originally going to go and see. Um, no, know, not at all. And right. she's supposed to go and see Nick's dad. Oh, yeah. That promise was odd. <laughs> that, that's, that's the sort of... Do you remember? There's something quite... It reminds me of the end of Heart of Darkness, which I found all equally unsatisfying. Yeah. You know, where, when um, they go and see... Uh, fiancé. Yeah. Or fiancé. His last words were, <laughs> were your name. Like, yeah. No. But yeah, the, the, that, that rung equally hollow, I think. Yeah, and that suggests that there is some after that will be affected by that. And then you get to the end and it's like, well, we're back now, everything's brilliant and we're just going to forget that ever happened within like 10 minutes, you know? Get the Starbucks, I want coffee. <laughs> but yeah, that, that struck me as a very odd ending and I know we've discussed before that King's not, he's all about the journey, not the destination. Did you see what I did there? Yeah. But I think this one particularly felt flatter than the drink that they popped in the airport lounge. Yeah, a little bit. I mean, because this is the thing as well. You've got, you know, the pilot's wife is still dead. Yeah. And Dinah is dead. Right, and how are they going to justify to Dinah's mum that not only is her daughter disappeared, but so is her, sister, her daughter dead, but her sister just disappeared. Yeah. There's a whole plethora of events that would be repercussions of what's going on that we don't, he doesn't even acknowledge. Mm, no, I'm, I'm with you entirely, but I don't really know how to resolve it in a forum like this one. No, I don't either. I think we've just... Other than to acknowledge that there is, I think, a slight... Un dissatisfaction with its conclusion I think there. overall though I enjoyed it oh, no I mean I think dare I say that as a quartet I find them you know I think you know if you look at them in, in comparison to, to different seasons I actually prefer this one this quartet oh no I'm all I love different seasons well I it's think it's got some the three of the four at least uh, stories that I found to be absolutely just amazing I don't know. I think, all right, maybe what I would say is that if you look at them as a set of eight, yeah. my favourite two are in this one. Okay, fair enough. I'll let you have um, that. Well, we will I go do on think, to discuss that. <laughs> I do think it shows a definite progression, however, in King's storytelling. Yeah. I do yeah. think that he, whilst I've been you know, waxing lyrical about my dissatisfaction with certain elements of this story, mm. I do think his his storytelling has grown and they are you know you know things like i was affected in for example in the body yeah their journey and some of the things that happened i was affected but i think i felt diner's fear better mm. in this i think his ability as a storyteller has evolved here i think that and i think this is perhaps where i get 
and as much as when I say my favourite two are not are in this one, one of them is not the Langoliers. But um, but um, what I would say is that there is a a depth of reflection running throughout all four of these mm. novellas yep. that is perhaps absent in I think certainly in in the body. There's only sort of a reflection on the ramifications of what they've seen. Mm. When, you know, Chris Chambers breaks down and sort of talks about, um, you know, why he's been sort of pegged as the thief. Yeah. You know, by his, you know and, and what that means for him in terms of his life, his prospects for his future prosperity or lack thereof. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and the kind of, there's only sort of a, a, the reflection sort of happens... As, as an afterthought, it's like I've done all this stuff. Now let's reflect on it. Yeah. It's kind of, you know. But I also uh, think there's a believability in the body as well. Anyways, okay. yeah. So yeah, I think the ending of of the Langoliers is a bit a bit wobbly. A little bit. A little bit wobbly. But, but I do think genuinely his ability to put us into the mind of the characters he's talking about has definitely grown. Yeah, and I think as an as an anti figure. Um, Craig Toomey is one of the most nuanced mm. and he's very you... rounded I can empathise with a number of the reasons why Craig Toomey is the man he is Yeah, yeah. Um, whereas I don't get that with Ace Merrill for example no no although as we'll talk about in, in the Sundog if once we've met Pop Merrill mm. um, we might have more of an inclination as to why Ace Merrill is like he is yeah. Yeah. Right, Ellen, so I was thinking maybe we should wrap up. We've been talking for over an hour about the Langoliers. Oh, you know, Langoliers. it's been a while and I don't see you as much these days, either because I'm in London or because of lockdown. Sad times. I'm refusing to come out of lockdown, I Me have too. to be honest. Um, I'm immunocompromised and I see the news and things that people aren't social distancing, that people aren't being careful, there are spikes in infection. I live in a county where numbers are still rising, sadly. Or numbers uh, aren't dropping. Maybe rephrase that. I, I live in London now, so I don't think I'll ever be comfortable down here while, um, when there's not social distancing going on certainly the number of four buses going past my window on a daily basis i don't um, think i have seen one person go past my house and it's it's on a path pathway so it's quite a few people i don't think i've seen anybody with a mask on even though it's a legal requirement now so even outside i thought it was i thought it was just general being places and being in places and doing things but you know, so I'm going to stay home. Enough, so it's obviously blown over now, so it'll all be well, fine. That does seem to be what the world is thinking, doesn't it? <sighs> yes, indeed. And on that delightful bombshell... Um, yeah, on that delightful bombshell, Alan, I would just like to remind everybody of our social media presence, if that's all right. Yeah, sure. We'll, we'll social distance on there. <laughs> we'll social distance on social, social media. Social distance media presence. Uh, so our Facebook is facebook.com forward slash Pennywise Dreadful. Um, Twitter is at Pennywise Dread. And we can be reached on email at PennywiseDreadful at gmail.com. So uh, if you want to complain, um, please write to us, but we'll feel free to ignore you. Or no, we won't. No. <laughs> no. I think, you know, we welcome... Um, All constructive criticism. With... with well, just, let's say, dialogue about yeah. all things King with yeah. fellow um, 
king of files. Right, okay then, Alan. I'll see you soon. Bye!